All right, for those of you who are students, and please don't raise your hand, and please don't nudge the person next to you, but have you ever had a roommate that has a different standard for what it means to keep your place clean, or what clean is, all right? Same rule for you who are married. Any of you married, are there ever any differences with your spouse about what it means to be clean? And when you say the word clean, that never happens in my house, ever. How about if you're a single person who has roommates? What is clean enough in your place? Or this is probably the worst one. How about those of you who are single and live by yourself? Have you ever disagreed with yourself about what clean is, okay? <laughs> and ever said, is this good enough? Right? Clean, cleanliness. In our text today, we're going to take a look at a passage that, passage that talks about being morally clean. And one of the challenges that we kind of have in our current context, let's think about living in 2023, in regard to the idea of what moral cleanness is or moral purity, there's such a spectrum of understanding when it comes to the idea of moral clean, cleanness, cleanliness, being morally clean. Now, I'm talking about cleanliness, I'm talking about moral now, okay, not your apartment, but morally clean. One of the perspectives is that I'm pretty morally clean. I'm a good person. I try not to hurt people. I do good things. Essentially, God is happy with me. God and I are good. That's my old buddy, Rip. Rip and I grew up together. We played football together in high school. I've known Rip probably my whole life. We don't have much contact anymore. A lot of it's through social media and Facebook. But that's what Rip used to say to me all the time. He goes, God and I are good. And how I understood that was like, me and God have our own personal arrangement. <laughs> and I do what I think is right, and God's good with that, all right? So we have that side of it. Like, I'm, I'm a good person. What do you mean about being morally clean? God's happy with me. God and I are good. Then there's the extreme on the other end. I'm so morally impure or unclean, no one could ever forgive me or save me. I'm doomed, that perspective has. God will never be happy with me. God is not good with me. God looks at me and he sees the slightest impurity, the slightest failure, and he just wants to be done with me. That's another perspective. And then another one is that I'm not morally clean, but I'm better than most people. And we compare ourselves to someone usually who's far worse than us. So we would, our, that perspective is essentially saying, I'm doing my best, and God should be happy with that. And that always reminds me of a guy I used to work with back in the day. And we worked at a, at a kitchen, and we worked at a kitchen and a food service at a, at a university. And he used to tell me all the horrible things that he was doing morally in his life. But he goes, but at least I'm not. And then he would list off like three of the most horrible things you could think of a human being doing, right? And he goes, I don't do those things. I'm pretty good. I'm doing my best. God should be okay with me. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? All those different perspectives. On the one hand, I'm just a pretty good person. God should be good. On the other hand, I'm so morally messed up. God could never be good with me, could never forgive me. Or the other one is, well, compared to that guy, and I always loved it because we always picked, like, the worst guy. And, man, when I used to work in, I'm sorry, I shouldn't smile about this. But when I used to work in the recovery center, right, guys who were doing just uh, some crazy things. In but I wasn't like this guy, you know, and they would compare themselves. When I worked in the prison, done some pretty horrible things, but I wasn't like this guy. And we do that same thing. And so those are some of the perspectives in the culture that we live in. I want you to hear the good news today. I have a way better option than those three. 
I have a really good option for you that is way more beautiful and way more powerful and way more encouraging than those three. So stick with me today, and I hope that you'll hear it here in Zechariah chapter 3. So let me just remind you a little bit where we are. The people of Israel have been off into exile for 70 years in Babylon. They're returning to Jerusalem, and they've been called to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And last week in Haggai, we looked at that, and we were reminded of the importance of prioritizing God's priorities. So that was last week. They, they weren't prioritizing God's priorities. Now, this week, we're going to see the beautiful picture of what God does for us. Okay? So last week, we're supposed to be seeking God's priorities and doing things God's way. This week, we're going to take a peek at what God is going to do for us. And it's a beautiful picture, and I hope that it will mean something to you today and it will grip your heart today. Here's the first verse, and we're just going to work through it a couple of verses at a time. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. Now, Zechariah is having visions. He's, this is a book full of visions. So you have to think about it. Whether it's a dream or some other way, the Holy Spirit is uh, giving him visions that he's seeing that are prophetic visions that he's preaching to the people. And this is what he sees in these prophetic visions. Now, again, we don't know if they're dreams or if God is bringing him into the certain situation and presence, so he's seeing these things. We just know for sure that he's having these supernatural visions and telling us what they are. And here it is. Then he showed me Joshua, who was the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So here's the high priest, the one who could intercede for the people, the one who could go into the Holy of Holies and, and present sacrifices in the temple that hasn't been built yet, but they're waiting to get it there so he can go back to doing what he had done before, which was to, to make sacrifices and intercede for the people. And so this is who the high priest is, and he's standing by the angel of the Lord. Now use your imagination and see this picture. And look who's standing right there, Satan, a.k.a. the accuser. Satan means accuser. So his, his actual name means the accuser. So there's the high priest of God. There's an angel of the Lord. And there's Satan, the accuser, standing there. And he's standing there at the angel of the Lord's right hand for the one purpose. The singular reason he's standing there is so that he can pounce on the high priest and accuse him. Because that's all he does. That's what Satan is about. He's the accuser. So he's kind of like a cat just sitting there, just waiting for his opportunity to pounce. Almost like he's rubbing his hands together with that sneer on his face, like, I gotcha, high priest. Because we're going to see in a little bit the high priest's clothes are filthy rags. He's not standing there morally clean. And so Satan's like, this is my kind of guy. Because he's not morally clean, and I'm going to go after him. The great accuser, the destroyer, it's like he's salivating, just ready to devour his helpless prey. Because the high priest isn't clean. Now watch this, though. This, I love this. If you don't remember anything else, I say this at least once a sermon, right? If you don't remember anything else, I hope you remember this. Before he can say anything, and the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Before he could pounce, before he could say a thing, before he could do what he does, the Lord Almighty looks at Satan and he says, with all the power and authority that the Lord Almighty has, he says, I rebuke you. He didn't say, yeah, his rags are filthy, his clothes is filthy, he's yours, go ahead. He didn't say, I don't care, 
I'm just up here running the universe. I don't care what happens to puny human beings. Just do whatever you want. He says, I rebuke you. He rebukes the accuser. I, the Lord, he says, am the one who has chosen Jerusalem. And if anybody's going to deal with Jerusalem, I'm going to do it, but it's not going to be you. I'm the one who rescued them from the fire like an ember. See this picture? You're supposed to be thinking of a picture like you're out at a bonfire, right? And there's this really, like a, a piece of wood that's a hot ember. And you know how if you leave these things long enough, what happens? They turn into ashes, right? Well, the, the picture is that he reaches in and he pulls Israel out from that hot fire so that piece of ember doesn't completely burn down and dissolve. He rescues it. That's the picture we're supposed to have. Because that ember that is burning in the fire is his. It belongs to him. Now, what I hope that you're hearing today, and a big part of the Old Testament, is to see the character and nature of God. And the beautiful part here is that our God is a rescuing God. And his people are being consumed in a fire. And he reaches right in there, and he pulls them out. And he looks over to the accuser and says, you're not going to get away with that. Because these people are mine. You have no say. Satan, I rebuke you. I love this. I hope this connects with you. But our God is an accuser rebuking God. Isn't that good news for us today? Our God is an accuser rebuking God. When the accuser is ready to attack us, our God says, no, no, no. I'll deal with them. I'll bring something I call conviction. I'll send my Holy Spirit to do stuff. But I'm not going to let you do it, Satan. And he reaches in and he plucks that ember from the fire before it's totally consumed. And he's going to do something. The beauty of this is watch what the high priest does and watch what God does throughout this whole thing. So you got the picture? The high priest is standing there. He's the one who's supposed to intercede for the people. But his, we're going to see in a second, his, his clothes were filthy rags. The accuser is standing right there just ready to pounce because that's what he's about. And God just looks at him and says, I rebuke you. This is The Lord does it. God does it. Says, These are my chosen people. And I've reached in and I've plucked them out of the fire. Now here's the thing. Joshua was standing, verse 3, before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. His garments were filthy. He wasn't morally clean enough to stand before a holy God. He wasn't morally pure enough to stand there and say, I'm going to represent the people. His garments were filthy, and this was symbolizing the sin of his own sin and the sin of Judah. That was always the problem, right? With an earthly high priest, he was never holy enough. That's why we need another high priest. But the earthly high priest was never holy enough, and Joshua wasn't holy enough. And his wasn't morally clean and morally pure. And his garments were filthy, representing the sin of his own sin and the sin of Judah. And then here it is. And the angel said to those who were standing around him, now here's the picture. He's got this robe on, this filthy clothes. Remove, remove the filthy garments from him. It's God who, who removes the filthy garments. This is a picture of sin and moral uncleanness being taken off by God. Isn't that an awesome picture? That it's God who's going to do it. The angel says, remove that filth from him. And to him he said, now he's turning and he's talking to the high priest, Joshua. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
continue to watch who's doing all of the work. I'm going to take your iniquity. I'm going to clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on him. Now the Lord is speaking. He says, put a clean turban on this one. And they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Man, can you see the picture? Because this is so important because this is the picture of what God does for us. He's not just doing this for his people in the Old Testament. We're going to see the beauty of it in the New Testament. But right now, we're supposed to kind of paint this picture in our head. His iniquity was removed. His sin and uncleanness was taken away. You see that picture? His sin and what made him unclean, whether he thought he needed it or not. Remember back to our earlier examples? He knows he needs it because he's looking at his garments and his garments are filthy. Part of our problem is that we don't often look and see that we need it. But here's what is happening. His sin and uncleanness were all taken away. But the best part was, not only were they taken away, he was given new clothes. He was given a clean turban, clean clothes from the Lord. Now look at this again. The Lord did all of it. He didn't say, this is not what the Lord said. The Lord said, he didn't say, Joshua, go back and try harder. Go grit your teeth and see if you can get this moral thing right. Didn't tell him to do that. Didn't say, go try hard. He didn't say that I've got this long list of laws and rules that you need to follow before your garments are clean. He didn't even say, go wash your garments yourself. Go clean it up somehow. No, he did it. He took the uncleanness away. And he gave him new and clean garments. Now I want you to pause for a moment and take a look at how this connects us to Jesus. How this thread that we've been talking about, how all the Old Testament points us to Jesus. Listen to a few of these pictures in the New Testament. And these are just a few. You probably will have others that come to your mind. But listen to 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, meaning Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed he bore our sin the one the filthy rags that i have that need to be removed the filthy rags that you have the filthy rags that the high priest joshua was wearing needed to be put somewhere and they were put on jesus and it says he bore our sin in his body in his body on the tree he bore our sin and so that's the first picture. That's the, that's the filthy garment being taken off and, and put on. Now the problem is, and, and I don't know what your spiritual journey has been like, but when I was growing up in the church, I got the taking off of the filthy garments and being placed on Christ. And I understood that my sins were placed on him. I don't think I fully understood it until I got older in my journey, the next part. Because not only does, do I have to get rid of the filthy garments and they need to be dealt with, I needed some clean clothes. I needed something clean and good. The best way I try to explain it to people is like this. Think of your bank account and think that you have an infinite debt. Let's just say, what seems like a lot of money to you? For some of us, it's 100 bucks, right? <laughs> if you owe somebody 100 bucks. Let's just say you owe... 20 trillion, or what's the, what's the big quad, quadrillion? Whatever the words are that we can't even fathom, right? I have, my son Josh isn't here. He's the one I'd ask, and he'd tell me. <laughs> um, just think, that's your debt. And so we, we kind of 
get that sometimes, and Christ came and paid the debt. But here's the thing. My bank account, that just got me to zero. I need an infinite amount of positive money, if you want to use that picture, to please God and to have the righteousness that I need. Now, how do I make a positive deposit into that account? Work really hard and see if I can earn that infinite? Or is it the righteousness of Jesus? You see, taking off the garments and Christ bearing our sin is bringing my account up to zero. But now I need a righteousness. I need something on the positive part of the account. And that's where Jesus comes in as well. So the awesome part is Jesus does all the work. So here's Philippians 3, 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own because that will never be enough that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. A righteousness that comes from him. His righteousness. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Our sin being placed on him. The filthy rags. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the other side of it is. So my sin placed on him. And he becomes sin who didn't ever sin. Sin in my place that we might become the righteousness of God and we get his righteousness poured into it, now my account goes through the roof. My bank account is no longer at zero. It is at infinite value because of the righteousness of Christ. The idea of putting on something to replace the old and filthy garments is the righteousness of Christ and getting that righteousness that is outside of ourselves. And so in this passage... We're getting this picture of this moral cleanness that I need. I don't have it, but I need it. It doesn't matter what list I'm following, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I need some sort of righteousness, and I need some sort of cleansing. And this is a great book uh, passage that's talking about the cleansing that comes and then the righteousness that we receive. So the priest is having his filthy clothes removed, his sin removed, and then he's given new clothes, a righteousness. And this jumps us back to Ezekiel chapter 36, back when we were in Ezekiel, when God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to change it. Out goes the old, in comes the new. And then this is where we go back to our passage now. Here it is. And the angel of the Lord, verse 6, solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts. Don't forget when you hear that, this is Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. So the angel is saying to Joshua, the high priest, here's what God is saying. So if God's speaking, we should probably all listen up. If you'll walk in my ways and keep my charge, then sh you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. And here it is. Here's the sign. Behold, I will bring my servant, 
the branch. And he's saying, Joshua, those, you and those who follow you are going to be placeholders. You're going to be in the place of something that's to come. And if you do what I'm asking and if you obey me, you're going to be this sign, this placeholder. And they're holding a place for what? Until when? Until I bring my servant the branch. And it all hinges on the branch. Here we go. While we might have to pause and try to figure out what the branch means, the people of Israel didn't. When they heard that, they knew exactly what it was talking about. Back to Isaiah chapter 11, for instance, in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit. He's saying there is one coming that will, Isaiah is saying this, that is a branch that comes from the root, the stump of Jesse, and the stump of King David, and it shall bear fruit. So when the Old Testament readers are hearing this prophet speak, they know that branch is talking about a coming one, the Messiah who is coming down the road. Or Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So when they hear the branch, they go back to here and they go, whoa, he's talking about one's coming from the line of David, and he's going to be a righteous branch, and he's going to reign, and he's going to do what's right, and he's going to execute justice and righteousness. So this branch is a king. It's a Messiah coming from the line of Jesse, which comes through David, a righteous branch, and he's going to reign, and he's going to do what's right and good. And then he gets into this kind of strange passage, but he's talking about the branch now, the Messiah that's to come, and now we're getting into what we call apocalyptic literature, and I'll try to explain it to you here in a second. For behold, on the stone, verse 9, that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now in verse 9, this imagery, we're like, okay, now we're getting a little weird. Hey, if you like some weird stuff, sometimes read some of the prophets, all right? Read Ezekiel. Man, if you've ever read Ezekiel chapter 1, you're going to be like, how do I envision this weird thing? My boys, when they were younger, what book of the Bible do they love the most? Revelation, right? Because you got dragons and you got stuff in there. And then, hey, Dad, can I read Revelation again? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, go for it. Just remember, God wins, all right? Apocalyptic literature gets a little strange, but here's what we have come to understand here in this passage a single stone is the solid, stable rock. Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So in the New Testament, we're going to see the imagery sometimes referring to Jesus as a stone or a rock. So he's the chief cornerstone. So there is this rock here. Seven, which is the number of perfection in the Bible, gives us this image and picture of this perfect stone. And then the eyes in apocalyptic literature tend to indicate all seeing and all knowing. So here's this rock, stable, solid, got seven eyes. Seven being the perfect number, and then the eyes being all-seeing. That's usually what we see in apocalyptic literature in the Bible with those images. Okay? You can wrestle with that. You can go back and study that and see what you think about that. 
But essentially what is going on here, he's saying the Lord of hosts, who is solid and stable and perfect and all-knowing, is going to, now you got to see how this all connects together. That one who is those things, that rock in this picture, what is he going to do? I'm going to engrave in its, in its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I'm going to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Here's the whole punchline of all of this. In a single day, that rock, all-knowing, stable, perfect, is going to remove their iniquities in a single day. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Good Friday? This is all connecting us to the, what the gospel is all about and what Jesus is going to do. Now, picture this. In a single day, all of the sin that we've been looking at in all the Old Testament, all of the sin that has happened from the Old Testament till now, all of your sin and my sin can be dealt with through an event that happened in a single day. This is God Almighty. He's not up there going, boy, this is a rough thing to deal with your guys' iniquity. To take off your filthy rags and give you new ones. He's going to do it in a single day. And it's Good Friday. And he's going to do it by sending Jesus. Now what I want to do in the last couple minutes here is to take a peek at the rest of the imagery in Zechariah and see if anything sounds familiar to you about this coming one, this one who is going to come in the future, this Messiah. Because Zechariah is filled with images that we're going to hear about, especially when it comes to Easter. So just listen in. This king to come will come to Jerusalem in humility on the foal of a donkey. Listen to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. We see that on Palm Sunday. He's riding in on a donkey. This is Zechariah 400 years earlier telling us what's going to happen. Another one, the king to come will be rejected like a shepherd who is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You think, if you think about that, when Jesus got betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah told us it was going to happen. Verse 11, chapter 11. Then I said to them, if it not, seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver, exactly what Judas gets paid in the New Testament. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. That's what they paid for me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter, you know what they bought with the 30 pieces of silver when he brought it back and said, I did the wrong thing? They bought the potter's field. And that's where people were buried who didn't have anybody to bury them. How about this one? The king to come will be re rejected like a shepherd who was struck and all of his sheep will sh uh, scatter and run off. This is what Zechariah 13, 7 said. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who stands, stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus gets arrested, the shepherd, the sheep, his disciples scatter, every one of them. And finally, this king to come will be pierced for our sin. 
Listen to Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour out on the house of David, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for only a ch- for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. All of that stuff happens. All of it. They're going to weep over him. He's going to be pierced. And people are going to sit there and bow down and cry out. All of that's going to happen. And Zechariah is telling us that that's all going to happen. Also that we can have our filthy garments done away with. And new clean garments be given to us. All so that we can be cleansed and clean. Verse 10. In that day declares the Lord of hosts. Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. When that day occurs, when those filthy rags are removed and the new ones are put on, when all that occurs, a new covenant and a new promise is coming into play. And we've been talking about covenants throughout this series. The new covenant is just around the bend. And what he's saying is that when people experience that new covenant, when their filthy rags are being taken away, and they're given new garments, the righteousness of Jesus, and they've been given new hearts, and their old hearts are taken away, and new hearts that put them in a position where they want to love the Lord and do what the Lord has to say. When that happens, they're also going to want to look around and say, this is so awesome, I want you to come and be a part of it. They're going to look around at their neighbors and say, hey, I'm under this vine and this fig tree, and there's peace and cleanliness. I've been cleaned, and I want you to have it as well. When they experience all of that from the king, they want other people to know about it. When you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness and been given the righteousness of Jesus, that should cause you to say, hey, i got something pretty awesome. I want you to have it too. Now, when that happens, some people say, that's nice. I don't want it. Wow, that's a big no. How about you? Nope. How about you? Nope. How about you? Yes. All right. Here it is. Here's what I got to offer. Do you see the beauty of this? When he does that for us, it's a beautiful, powerful thing. I I offer you today the ability, opportunity to be cleansed from all the moral garbage in your life. That's awesome news. I do that all day long. (laughs) Offer that beautiful news that Jesus will do that. So what do we do with all this as I wrap up this morning? How do we pull this together? How do we try to process this in some way that will affect our lives? First, I just want to invite you and remind you, you need to be cleansed. It's not hard for us, some of us, to accept that we need to be cleansed. Some of us know, man, yeah, I know my, my moral failures. I know my sin. For some of us, it's not that hard. For some of us, it's harder because we think we're pretty good people. But God says that we are all sinners. We all come short of the glory of God and his perfection. And we all need to be cleansed. We all need to have Jesus take off those old garments, wash up, and give us his new garments. And this only happens by faith. That's what's so crazy. That's what's so hard for us. It only happens by faith in what Jesus has done for us. So the first application is everybody needs to be cleansed. Second, you need to trust that you are cleansed. For some of you, you have put your faith in Christ. 
for many of us in this room, we have put our faith in Christ, but there's an accuser who keeps coming along the way and says, no way, what are you talking about? You are not, nope. You know yourself, you know your sin, you know what you've done. And we're li we listen to that accuser. I love the fact that in this passage, God doesn't even let him talk. He says, I rebuke you. But sometimes we listen. So on the one hand, some of us this morning have never had the cleansing of putting our faith in Jesus. I want to invite you to that today. For many of the, you, you have put your faith in Jesus, and that old accuser keeps talking to you. And you need to trust the truth that when Jesus, God Almighty, speaking through Jesus, and Jesus being God Almighty, stands there and says, you've been cleansed from all unrighteousness, who am I to say, I don't think you're right? <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus has declared that you have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Some of us live so de such defeated lives because the accuser talks, and we go, oh, yeah, the accuser, he's right. God talks, and we go, yeah, uh, I don't know if you're quite understanding how bad I am over here. <laughs> the accuser seems to be a little more accurate. Jesus says, I know exactly. But I took off that old garment, and I gave you new garments. I did it, Jesus says. So we need to trust that we've been cleansed. All right. Now follow this, because... I'm kind of proud of how I tied this part together, okay? So, so listen up here. Third, we need to display the truth that we've been cleansed and given new garments. We need to walk in such a way that we are walking in this spirit now with this new heart and this new spirit of righteousness so that we are living out our faith in such a way that people see it and we display it as we live this out. Don't jump back into the mud. Don't listen to the accuser, but also don't jump back into the mud. Walk in the spirit and we'll display this good news that you've been cleansed and been given the righteousness of Christ. Fourth application is to delight in the truth. Delight that you've been cleansed and that a new garment has been put on you. We should celebrate that truth every day. Guys like John Piper and others who have kind of opened up our, our eyes to this over the last couple of decades like, and, and what he says is that we're supposed to preach the gospel to ourselves daily every day I should wake up and go whoa Jesus Christ has forgiven me and go back to the simplicity of the gospel and delight in that and rejoice in it every day every day I should go whoa old garments taken off new garments put on I've got the righteousness of Jesus I'm not praying that prayer every day, asking Jesus into my heart or however you want to say it. I'm rejoicing every day that that truth is real. I'm rejoicing and delighting in the fact that, whoa, that old rag's gone, new clothing put on. I'm filled with the righteousness of Jesus. Delight in that and rejoice in that. And then declare. Declare to others that they too can be cleansed and given a new garment of righteousness. There are people in your life that are just waiting to hear that all the junk that they've experienced and gone through and done can be cleansed. I've met people that when you tell them that they can be cleansed from it all, they're like, oh, finally. But the, here's the thing, guys. Sometimes we're not always alert to those opportunities. And so sometimes, here's the thing. We're out here trying to share with somebody or we're too scared to do it. God is working and preparing people's hearts. 
One of my favorite stories is when I worked as a domestic violence counselor. It, was a, it wasn't a, a, a faith-based organization, but they all knew that I had been a pastor. And so when conversations came up, we'd have those conversations. Well, one of the young staff members, and she was like 24, 24 or 25, somebody had invited her to a Bible study. She'd been going to a Bible study. Then she'd come back to the office, and she and I would talk sometimes about her faith. My favorite thing about being there, I, I only spent a year at that job, 2015. I think God brought me to that job for this one purpose. Well, besides all the things I learned, but for this one purpose, one day she walks into my office and she goes, hey, Dean, I think I need Jesus. <laughs> and I said, I can help you with that. <laughs> I think I know some ways to point you to Jesus. I didn't do anything. God did it. I just was ready to do it. Here's the thing. There are people out there going, I need Jesus. Sometimes they're not saying it like that. But they need Jesus. You know, one way, and it's not about numbers, right? It's about people coming to faith. You want to know one way this place could be double the size by 2024? Is if each one of us shared the gospel with one person to the place that they came to faith. And we put our arm around them and said, I'm going to walk with you in the beginning of this journey. Come to church with me. We're going to walk with you in your discipleship. Sometimes it's easier than we think. It's just each of us having our antennas up and saying, God has done such a work in my life. I want other people to have that. I just want other people to be cleansed by the goodness of God and given the righteousness of Jesus for their good, for their sake, and for the glory of God. This is powerful, amazing, and incredible good news. It shouldn't be kept to ourselves. It should be something where we say, hey, I want other people to experience this too. Isn't it amazing what we have experienced? If you are in Christ today, stop and just think for a moment. Isn't it amazing? So since it's so amazing, I want to live it out. I want to delight in it. I want to declare it so other people could be a part of it. So in my notes, I just have at the end, let's get at it. <laughs> let's get at it. Let's do it. Let's display it, let's delight in it, let's declare it. Because there is a Jesus who came, cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and took off those old garments, threw them in the pit, and then gave us new garments, clean. And those new garments are his righteousness. That's awesome news. 